Hey everyone, this is Sono. And I'm Amit, and you're listening to Moonspeak. I'm a magical girl rookie, and Sono's a vet, so prepare yourself to be enchanted as we delve deep into each act. And today we're actually just doing a uh, double dose. We're discussing uh, Act 7 and Act 8. That's Mamoru Chiba Tuxedo Mask and, um, I don't know, Minako so, Sailor V, right? Yeah, um... Yeah, no, I think they would have used her name in this title. So it's, yeah, I know Minako, uh, Sailor Bay. So, yeah, there we go. Um, just before we get started, please remember to uh, support all the official channels so that we can, so that <laughs> the creators can get um, some ad revenue, Toei at least, so that they keep making these shows and we can get more. Definitely, we definitely want to, you know, get into further story arcs beyond the first two. So, you know, Hulu, Crunchyroll... Uh, Nico, Nico, I'll please go through the official channels. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and uh, jump right in. Uh, so the first thing that I thought was a big deal from Episode 7 is that uh, Mamoru wants his memories back, and that's why he's going after this legendary silver crystal. Yeah, because he keeps uh, having these dreams of someone telling him that if he finds the crystal, he'll get his memories back. And I always kind of forget that this is such a big part of his story in the beginning, because once uh, they kind of overcome that, it kind of entirely ceases to be a thing. And especially, like, with the first series, it still takes place within this first story, and then you've got, like, 150 more episodes of him just being Mamoru. So I always really forget that uh, his memory loss is kind of a big deal, because then... His goals kind of change onto Sagi and the whole uh, world-saving deal. Uh, I'm a little surprised to hear that, but um, things like that happen. So, uh, especially, I don't quite understand why you would run a show uh, while the manga isn't finished yet, except for the fact that it's massively successful and you really want those dollars. Or yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure at least the uh, the Dark Kingdom arc was over before they started the mo- before they started the first series. So I mean, it's just once they get the crystal, and it's not really such a big deal to him anymore. So it's kind of a weird plot thing for him that doesn't amount to a whole lot once uh, they kind of reach the end of it. Which is um. I'm not even going to call that weak. It's just kind of funny, but that kind of stuff happens in life all the time. You think you want something, and then once you get it, you uh, yeah, don't it's, care. Yeah, it's not quite <laughs> as important to him as the whole uh, Usagi world-saving deal. Okay, so then uh, we find out it's Minako in the next episode, but um, it was interesting uh, at the beginning of, or near the beginning of 7 to see um, somebody that looked like Sailor V given Luna directions in the moon base. Yeah. Which which is Sailor V, and they went pretty uh, pretty direct with it here. I remember the first series; it was always uh, secretly Artemis. There was no video feed, and he had like his voice distorted. But it was Artemis that she was talking to. Like Artemis was the one in the secret base, and Luna was communicating with him through the Sailor V machine. And then she finds out it's him, and it's kind of this kind of played off as a joke. But I always thought that was kind of an interesting way to go about it. Uh, but there, yeah, it's it's really cool that they made the communication with uh, Sailor V a lot earlier and uh, very very direct in Crystal. 
Yeah, it, it's kind of a weird thing even after seeing episode 8. I think um, really I'll have to wait till 9 to get all my questions answered, but I feel pretty good about it overall. Um, let's see. Oh, so apparently all the Sailor Guardians are awakening to memories from their past lives, uh, if I understood that correctly. Pretty much. Uh, they're getting there kind of slowly but surely. There's re- there's always been kind of a really interesting disconnect between the past and present lives. We never get kind of a whole lot of information about who they were, and we're left to infer a whole lot of stuff. Uh, Taiki Kichi really left things open for fans to explore kind of in Sailor Moon's expanded universe of backstory and future story and kind of outside the solar system stuff. There's a lot there. But it's always been, is it always, like, was Silver Millennium, Sailor Mars, actually just Rey, or is Rey her own person that kind of contains Sailor Mars? And that's, there's always been kind of a lot to interpret there, uh, and fans have always kind of interpreted it differently. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of fun, uh, that you have that flexibility there. Yeah, uh. it's it's... She's really given the fans a lot of room to make the story their own. Uh, yeah, speaking of which, uh, I think we're about to come to um, some different perspectives that we've drawn from the show. Yes. Uh, so, you know, Tuxedo Mask uh, having to save uh, Sailor Moon from Zozite's grasp um, was not something I was sure that I liked, even though it came after Moon Healing Escalation, which I know uh, takes a lot out of her, or seems to at this time anyway. Yeah, um, there's also the fact that Usagi isn't really a physical fighter. Uh, Her power is kind of all heart and all spirit. And kind of among, at least, uh, Mamoru and the inner group, he's really the most physical person of all of them because he doesn't have this kind of otherworldly power going on. And that was a really physical situation where he kind of needs to step in and be involved, and it does kind of set up the whole, his whole moment in Seven. Okay, I think that's fair, and um, I believe you're talking about the moment where he declares that his wish is now uh, Usagi not to find the crystal, right? Yeah, where, where it's like, okay, he's kind of got his whole thing in perspective, where he kind of knows what's, what's really important to him now, and I... The past couple episodes, I've really kind of found him being kind of a creeper, uh, doing a lot of, like, kissing Usagi while she's passed out, bringing her back to his apartment, and putting her in his bed, even though he clearly knows where she lives because he's gone there. Like, she was there overnight. (laughs) Shouldn't her parents, like, be worried? Shouldn't that be something they take into consideration? And, I mean, I know it was for exposition purposes where he needed this kind of private moment to talk to her about being Tuxedo Mask and her being Sailor Moon and kind of why he was doing things. But that still felt really, really skeevy to me. Just kind of the way he's been acting in the past couple of episodes. But this kind of cycles back to Mamoru wanting his memories and what that means to him. And he's been stuck in the past, even if it's a past that he doesn't really know. The past is what's been important to him this whole time, since he was eight and was in this car crash. But now, meeting Usagi and having her be so important to him, that's kind of put his his focus more on the future. So he can now see, beyond needing to know who he was, 
because now it matters who he is now and who he could be in the future. Uh, yeah, and I think that all came off really well, um, especially in that, that big moment of the declaration. Um, and I hadn't really put it all together, but to hear you say it like that, I totally can see that. It, it's, it's a great observation. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's a very, again, I've kind of, this has been with me for 20 years, so I've kind of got all of these pieces in my head that I'm watching come together in a new way, and I really do like how that was handled. Alrighty, well, let's move on to the uh, heavier stuff from episode 8. Um, yes. So... The Moon Kingdom is apparently called Server Millennium, which I didn't get at first, but... Yeah, uh, I don't think they've actually brought up that terminology until now, and I've been trying not to use it um, to avoid confusion. But yes, uh, the past Moon Kingdom is referred to as the Silver Millennium. Which is interesting, because that like brings into my mind all sorts of... Um, I don't know, like, was it a time constraint? Uh, did the Millennium part actually matter? Uh, but that's not stuff we need to go into right now. Yeah, um, I think th- I, that may get slightly answered when we go kind of into the backstory of the Moon Kingdom in the next couple of episodes. Okay, well, I'm so glad that that's what's going to be next. Um, yes. It, it, talking to you about this is like reading magazine scans without having to um, <laughs> get my uh, fingers dirty. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, Princess Serenity is Sailor V, apparently, um, which really shocked me. Um, and, uh, like, I thought this whole time that it was going to be Usagi, and I think it's really interesting the way that Usagi just, like, accepts that and then steps to the side, even though she as a character hasn't really had that be something that she's been invested in, but it just seems like the show was pushing that, so. I'm gonna sit here quietly as we wait for the next episode, because I can't say anything without some really major spoilers. (laughs) Um, so Harry Potter went to the moon? Yeah, uh, Harry Potter, and then Harry Potter went to Mars. Okay. <laughs> oh, to Mars, that's uh, right. <laughs> as, as people may remember, uh, being my spoiler key phrase from college, from uh, back in our, our drive episodes. Or no, that was, some, it had something to do with Gaim, but that uh, that is my spoiler key phrase, so... I, I, I really can't discuss this point at the moment, but we will be discussing that in the future, I can promise you. Okay, well, I look forward to it. Uh, all right, so uh, Minako, uh, Sailor V, and her partner Artemis uh, were dealing with the Dark Kingdom from some time ago, uh, and she knows more than the others. She tells Artemis um, that she must settle things herself before the others uh, regain their memories. So... Like, that's really intense, and I really enjoyed that whole dynamic, but, like, I think there, like, that gives me a clue that something else is going on. It's one of the few things that gives me a clue. There's there's a lot of things uh, going on, especially with Minako and Artemis. Uh, Minako's really a really, really fascinating character in this way. Uh, it's kind of hard to see right now. Uh, from your perspective, from my perspective, I know exactly what's going on. But uh, right now, we've only really seen her as the devoted soldier Sailor V, kind of helping Sailor Moon fight from the shadows and doing her own thing and fighting the, the Dark Kingdom uh, before Sailor Moon and the others were awakened. Uh, definitely, once we're a few a few weeks past these huge reveals and kind of ha- you have all of 
the context of everything, I would definitely recommend uh, going back and reading the Sailor V manga, because it, it helps bring a lot of uh, Minako's mentality here into perspective. Because it, it's uh, set during the time before Sailor Moon when she was fighting on her own. And I have to say that the way that it's played off in the show, which is accurate to the manga fairly, right? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, it makes... I hadn't got a chance to go back and uh, review these chapters. Okay, it makes me want to see or read um, Sailor V, because it's just like, what was going on, you know? Especially with the mystique of her being the princess and whatever. But uh, moving on from that, um, so Usagi's dreams of uh, Endymion... Um, <laughs> Um, escorting Princess Serenity through a horde of attacking Silver Millennium citizens uh, is another thing that tips me off, too. Well, maybe things aren't exactly what they seem to be here. Yeah, I really appreciate them carrying this dream motif through. Uh, they've been carrying this since episode one, and this angle is really new to the franchise. Uh, this dream, this specific dream and kind of the perspectives of it are not something I've ever seen them do uh, in the manga or the first series or that I've heard them do in any kind of live-action adaptation. So, like, I'm really glad to see them kind of taking this perspective and really, really rolling with it and getting and using it to further the story. Again, I'm also really glad that we brought finally brought in the term Silver Millennium so I can actually use it because I've had a hard time kind of just referring to it as the Moon Kingdom because I'm so used to that terminology. All right, um, let's see. Oh, so another clue. Um, something, I don't know if it's because of Drive or what, but I'm all into clues. Actually, I started watching Law & Order again because we have some DVDs at home. And, yes. Uh, man, I love that show. I was telling my wife, like, we got to buy all the seasons because they're just fantastic. Yes. I grew up on Law & Order, so I, I grew up on kind of cop dramas in general, but specifically Law & Order. So. It's, it's a brief tangent. I've heard that uh, Homicide Life on the Streets is actually a slightly better show, um, like, technically. But, uh, I don't know, I, I saw the crossover episodes and I just didn't feel it, so. <laughs> All right, um, so um, no identification for Minako's transformation uh, seems like a clue, uh, and, you know, she and Kunzai explicitly um, seem to have something uh, connecting the two of them, and that just sets up... I mean, that, that's part of what made me want to check out, you know, this Sailor V solo stuff, because it just seems like there's so much there. Yeah, uh, Minako is fully awakened. Like, they keep mentioning awakening the others to their past lives and everything. Minako is 100% fully awakened, aware of what's going on. She knows everything, including uh, about the enemies and why they're fighting, and the Four Kings specifically. Uh, She makes an allusion to kind of that storyline and what she's talking about with Kunzite, and I'm really glad to see them... Uh, kind of carrying that the Four Kings story through in Crystal because that was something left out of the first series. So I'm kind of, I'm interested to see how they'll take it, especially since uh, most of the Four Kings are dead at this point in the manga, and uh, they're keeping them alive in Crystal for some reason. So I'm interested to see how that will play out. Yeah, I want to see something about that, but uh, but I just can't. Um, except for well, never mind. I, I want to speculate, but I won't. I'll, I'll hold off. So. I don't need to. It's coming. We're <laughs> yeah. getting there. Next uh, couple of episodes. Right. It's just so hard to wait. Um, I know. 
Alright, so uh, I'm not sure how to feel about Mamoru uh, saving Usagi twice in this episode, episode 8. Um, the first time uh, was cool, then uh, her warning to him to run away, and her you know, sending him off with a kiss, and uh, going off to protect her friends was super heroic. I mean, it was very heroic and it was awesome, um, but I feel like um, him jumping up and, and taking the hit for her um, kind of undercuts some of her awesomeness. It, it does um, make me like him more. Um, especially his ability to jump 50 feet in the air. That has always been his special skill. Just leaping ridiculous distances. I don't know how he manages that since he has no otherworldly powers. He, He clearly does some... He doesn't skip leg day. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, someone had to save Usagi here. She was falling. The other senshi had absolutely no way of saving her, because if they let go, they would have also fallen. So I don't really think him stepping in to catch her really undercuts anything, especially because of her reactions, where she has this moment of fear where she realizes, oh my god, I was just falling to my death, but then her response to that is, okay, I gotta go back and fight, I gotta go do the thing. And she kind of fully commits to what she do and and goes in to protect everyone. Mamoru, her friends, her guardians, everyone that's important to her. And that kiss was really important to me because she took that one for herself. She went in for that and she did. Mamoru was fully, like, coherent. There was no kind of weird creeper kiss going on in that one. And, like... That should have been their first kiss, and I wish they had taken the other two kind of out, because that one had a lot of impact. Um, I really think it's fine that she was protected, and it's fine to need help. I think sometimes a man can save a woman, especially in a woman-centric narrative, and a woman can save a man. Usagi and Mamoru are shown to be equals in this. If anything... Usagi is the greater power here. Uh, But we already know, we've had it established in Seven, just how important the two of them are to each other. So I don't think his knee-jerk reaction to run in and save her really makes her seem less powerful. Especially since he's immediately following it with, oh man, you're, you're suddenly really strong and this is a side of you that I haven't seen with your, your commitment to this. And about him wanting to learn more about her and who she is and who she can be. Yeah, that's a really good point about him, like, acknowledging her strength. Um, and, like, that's, I don't know, that's more what I loved. And, and you're right, him him saving her was uh, appropriate. It's just I almost felt like it was too bad because of the circumstances. And then, you know, she goes off and, and does the thing and he you know, takes the hit. But so like the, the, the him taking jumping in and taking the hit was more my my issue. Um, but I think I think you raised some really fair points that um, I don't know, go to go towards legitimizing that or whatever yeah, you want to say. So especially within Crystal, Mummer never steps in to save her unless he absolutely has to. There's never an instance where Usagi could still be fighting on her own and he just steps in to save the day and kind of undercuts her ability to fight. It's a really weird um, balance for me, or, like, I, I'm having to learn, again, uh, like, what heroism is, or, uh, 
You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's it's just a different genre and, and things happen in a different way. Um, and I mean, I we're, just... we're all very used to, especially within, within Kamen Rider, within Tokusatsu, a guy stepping in to save a woman when the woman can clearly still fight for herself and do things on her own. Uh, Toei is not always so good about that. But here, they're kind of holding true to Mamoru in that way, and really letting him fight only when he needs to. I would agree with that. It's just, uh, like I said, it's just it's weird. I, I really have to adjust to the idea of a hero, um, like not having this, you know, awesome attack force. Um, especially, I don't know. It was, uh, I was listening to the Major Spoilers podcast today, and they were talking about. Um, Wonder Woman. They've declared it Wonder Woman Week, and they're doing a bunch of Wonder Woman stuff over at their site, which is cool. Um, and they were so they were talking about Wonder Woman, and uh, it was funny. I was just away for the weekend, and um, somebody had like an old or like a weird old station on, and they happened to have like the 1970s or early 80s Linda Carter Wonder Woman show on. Um, and like I just saw a couple minutes of it, but she was doing like these really cool jumps. Um, like almost show a writer style stuff, except oh, like great. better editing and cutting. Yeah, um, well, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so like, that's it, it's funny because people have said like, oh, you can't do a Black Widow solo movie, you can't do a Wonder Woman solo movie these days, and like, it just doesn't make sense that you wouldn't be able to. Yeah, though um, we are now getting a solo Wonder Woman movie. Right, we are. Which so. is great, but it it's so strange because like we had Xena in the '90s and. We had like, Xena and Buffy, and the yeah. 90s was very much all about, like, feminine empowerment. And then I guess, like, we hit the 2000s and kind of forgot. I, I don't really the, know what happened. <laughs> it was really weird, because both those shows had a ton of kick-ass action, and it worked. Um, and I guess I'm just going to justify, like, how I'm used to seeing female, female heroes just be able to, you know, whoop ass all the time. And it's weird that Usagi, like, is... You know, the show's telling me, you're telling me, and I see that she's, like, this really powerful figure, but it isn't always about brute force with her, and it's rarely about that, and it's just, it's a different dynamic for me to learn, so, yeah, it, anyway. Yeah, it is, I, I completely understand that, um, it, you'll, you'll get more used to it as it goes on, and, I mean, Usagi's going to get stronger, everyone's going to get stronger, so, I mean, time will tell. <laughs> right, right. Okay, well, let's move on to the uh, the frilly things from these episodes. Yes. Um, so from episode seven, all the the romance um, <laughs> really uh, really spoke to me. Like I'm I'm smiling now and kind of blushing because it just was so cool. Um, so Mamoru and Asagi are definitely my OTP, and uh, like I'm I can't believe I'm saying that and how happy I am about this couple in this show. I, I have an old, very personal bias for Luna and Artemis. Uh, <laughs> please imagine seven-year-old me in my living room shipping a pair of cats, because that's a real thing that did happen in my life. <laughs> uh, I guess I can't be surprised. <laughs> it's not that strange, but um, it certainly is interesting. <laughs> I, I, Luna, I'm very Luna and Artemis all the way, forever. Uh, but Usagi and Mamoru is very much at the core of what Sailor Moon is. It's very much uh, the core of both of their personal narratives is kind of where they're going together. And the, their story is very, very, very romantic, very sweet, very and very interesting. Naoko plays it in a lot of great ways. 
Um, there's actually a lot of romance all all over Sailor Moon. We're not we don't quite see it as much uh, this early on. Uh, once once you kind of get into later arcs, you see a bit more of it. Once we get the outers, um, Haruka and Michiru are sort of the other canon couple. Uh, as anyone familiar with Sailor Moon is kind of aware, uh, our flagship lesbians. <laughs> yeah, they're, so they're not cousins. No, no, okay. <laughs> that was. I was. I was. My cousin and I were best friends as kids. Uh, our parents. All four of our parents worked full time, so we both stayed with uh, my our grandmother, uh, my father's mother, her mother's mother. She's the one who got me into Sailor Moon. She was, uh, and again, a very she was a very big fan of Haruka and Michiru. And when we got the dub of those seasons, and they were made cousins, it was really awkward for us as two female cousins who were very close. We're like, this is. Very, very awkward. This is not what our relationship is like at all. Why did you change this? Right, yeah, I can imagine that being kind of off-putting. Yeah, no, it was very, very uncomfortable uh, for the two of us growing up. The way, because we had been into Sailor Moon, we had seen the later seasons before they were dubbed. We were, you know, getting fan subs all over the place. I think we, uh, we were starting to get a few DVDs by that point. And then we get to this dub, and it was very, very awkward uh, seeing Amara and Michelle portrayed as cousins when a lot of their romantic undertones were not taken out of the show. Uh, I don't even know what to say to that. (laughs) It was not a good editing job. (laughs) All right. um, Yeah, was was it Sailor Moon with, like, the third company by then? Uh, I think so, yeah. Uh, it was either the second or third company. It was definitely by the time we had British Grandma Luna. Uh, <laughs> Luna's voice actress is usually a pretty good indication of uh, which company had them. I, I, I can just imagine that. Uh, <laughs> Come on, Sailor Scouts, you must fight, right? Is, oh, that, yeah. is that what she went to? Yeah, it was... British Grandma Luna was very, very special. <laughs> that was a special time in all of our lives. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, um, let's see. Da-da-da-da. Okay, next note. Um, so uh, Zozite interrupted uh, Sailor Moon's post-transformation uh, spiel, which was crazy. How, I mean, how dare he? Does, yeah. Doesn't he know the protocol? I know, that's that's just not right. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's, that's a fun thing to see. Um, like, simultaneously creating and... Uh, breaking your own tropes or, or yeah, because again, it, Sailor Moon was definitely uh, kind of one of the ones to really drill that home, drill home kind of the catchphrase. But and now, twenty years later, and again in the original series, it was all stock footage, so there was really no way to interrupt it. And it's still stock footage here, but they play with it more because. Uh, the stock footage isn't really used as much for time constraints. It's just kind of tradition. 
so to see them kind of break that right. and play with it a little um, is pretty funny. It, it just it caught my ear. I'm like, oh, some is it? Because yeah, I, mean, I was really taken uh, aback. Uh, uh, when I was even more taken aback, Shalom Sama. One freaking Queen um, Metallia song. I like how awesome <laughs> is that? Yes. Anyway, um, Sorry. It, it, I um, just think it's so a funny, it's really cool uh, that, like, um, English thing that they have her um, being called Beryl Queen and Sama. But I don't know all the rules, so maybe that's okay. I think it's pretty funny. Yeah. I mean, again, it may just be. Again, kind of Queen Metalia being uh, kind of a traditional within the franchise thing to call her, and then kind of tacking on, tacking on the suffixes for protocol. Right. Um, Uh, It just caught my ear. Oh, some is it? Because I'm, I'm. uh, I sometimes I randomly say Shalomun Sama. Um, just because I love that. Okay, thanks. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, so it's really cool that um, um, Beryl okay, sorry is like that. this woman okay. who um, I, I, I so kind of think ahead. she has some parallels with Mamoru maybe, like that she was called. Um. Yeah, no. Uh, the whole Beryl versus Metalia thing, Beryl kind of secretly working this angle to take the the silver crystal for herself is is pretty cool, and it's always fun to see a villain in fighting, and kind of secret secret villain plots, uh, backstabbings. Uh, I don't. Rem- I know this wasn't a thing in the first series. I don't remember if this was in the manga, but uh, so I think this may again be a. a route that Crystal is taking on its own, and I think that's a pretty interesting direction. Crystal is playing a lot with the Dark Kingdom villains, uh, and I'm really curious to see where they take them. My overall impression from uh, Episode 8 is uh, Minako is so intense, which I know we touched on a little bit, but it's it's a lot of fun. Yes. Uh, Minako's intensity is applied to all things in her life, and it's an amazing part of who she is. Mako takes everything, or Minako, uh, excuse me. Minako takes everything kind of full force, and she's a really great character for it, and I can't wait until we're kind of past this exposition and get to see more sides of her, because right now we're kind of getting uh, all business Minako, and she's got a really great fun side to her that I can't wait until we start exploring. I thought the animation in the beginning of the episode where she was being like kind of playful and um, like I felt like there was a lot of subtle acting going on, and I think that um, you know belies yes. the intensity or whatever. Hello there, listener. I'm sorry for the abrupt uh, interjection, but something happened that I don't quite understand, and we lost uh, some of our data on this episode at the end, uh, about ten minutes or so. So, uh, Sono and I discussed it, and what we're going to do is just kind of roll it into next episode. Um, I think the notes will still be in the show notes for the show, which I'm expanding the show notes for the episode, so you'll get something out of visiting the site or looking it up on your uh, player when you're listening to the show. Uh, when you're listening to Moon speak, rather. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we we had some interesting stuff to say, talking about Monaco and just kind of how things are different in the show, or they're changing in the show right now, and uh, we'll get to that next time. So, um, for Sona, because she's not here right now, uh, this is Amit, and uh, this has been Moonspeak, bi-monthly discussion and review of Sailor Moon Crystal. Visit trialofheroes.wordpress.com to see text reviews every Monday after Crystal airs and hear new Moonspeak the Monday after that. Moonspeak is part of the Toe Network, where you can find articles and commentary on pop culture and genre fandom, 
including our flagship show, Uncommon Cast RX. The opening and closing is a piano arrangement of the uh, New Sailor Moon Crystal song, Moon Pride, played by Josh Agarado, whose work you can find at josh.agarado.net, and also on YouTube. There's a lot of cool work there, so go ahead and check it out if you like this song. <laughs> 